right. Acts 1 in your Bibles tonight. And we're marching through the Bible, book by book. We've made it through the Old Testament, and now we've made it through the Gospels. And it has been an enjoyable journey for me studying and then delivering it. I hope that uh, you have grown in your knowledge of God's Word. John 8, 32 tells us, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And so my hope is that as you grow in your knowledge of the Bible, you are set free in more and more ways uh, to live a life of, of, uh, of godly liberty, spiritual freedom, freedom in Christ. You uh, understand better the boundaries of what's right and wrong and know how to uh, effectively operate inside of those. Acts chapter 1, once you found that, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll begin in verse 6 and read down through verse number 8 this evening. The Bible says there, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he saith unto him, unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. And so we're going to begin uh, a study of the book of Acts uh, entitled this, The Commission of the Christian and the Church. The Commission of the Christian and the Church. Let's pray. Lord, I ask tonight that you help us to um, uh, understand your word, to be motivated by what we learn and Lord, that we would live, leave here knowing, God, that you've given us um, a, a whole lot of power through your Holy Spirit so that we can do some incredible things. Lord, uh, uh, tonight, I ask that you'd help us to see the importance of living a cleaned up life and then uh, uh, living exactly what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Okay, so uh, some background on the book of Acts here. It was written by... Luke, uh, Luke uh, accompanied Paul all over the place, and he he wrote the obviously wrote the Gospel of Luke, and um, it, he wrote a two part series. So uh, he wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And truthfully, they could have put Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, and Acts if uh, they wanted to order the Bible that way. But it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, for the reasons we talked about, uh, Matthew labels Jesus as the king, Mark as the servant, Luke as a man, Jesus as a man, John as, a, um, as God. So they were put in that order, the Gospels were put in that order uh, very uh, methodically, very carefully. However, Luke and Acts carry the same earthly author, and Luke is trying to continue on uh, 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 with what he began in the book of Luke, Inside of the book of Acts. Uh, look, look back with me at Acts chapter 1 and verse number 1 there. It says there, the former uh, treatise, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he wrote the books of Luke and Acts directly to Theophilus. We have no idea who he is uh, other than his name being mentioned in the beginning of Luke and Acts. We have no other historical data on him. But God had him write these books, and Theophilus was the recipient of the initial writing here. But look back at verse 1 there. Notice it says there, uh, the former treatise, that's speaking of the book of Luke, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began, began to do and teach. So the book of Luke, that's the former treatise. The, the author, in the book of Luke, the author outlines what Christ began, what Christ 
began to do and teach. So Luke is the record of what Jesus began to do. If that's the case, then Acts is the record of what Jesus continued to do and teach. So Luke shows us what Christ began. Acts is a continuation of what uh, of what Jesus be started when he walked the earth. Now, if you look back there at the top of your uh, uh, Bibles, uh, where the title of the book is, we call it the book of Acts, but that's not actually all of the title. Look back up there with me. Can you read the title of the book with me there? The Acts of the Apostles. You see that there? The Acts of the Apostles. Now, that is an accurate name for the book because that is the name of the book. It is the acts, the works of the apostles. And throughout the book, you find different apostles doing the work of the Lord. Uh, But this isn't just the acts of the apostles. The book could have been titled, The Acts of the Christ and the Spirit. Because the book of Acts is the continuation of what Christ began in the New Testament and what he would continue to do uh, uh, in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts here. So uh, we get that this is, yes, the Acts of the Apostles. It is also the Acts of Christ and the Spirit. Now, by way of introduction, I want to give you some some thoughts. Um, The best way I know to put this is I'm going to give you a thought casserole. All right. I'm going to throw some random thoughts in the dish. And when you cook them all together, it all makes sense. But they're not necessarily all uh, connected one to the other. So let me just give you three, three different thoughts here that might not seem directly connected, but I believe are very important in our introduction to the book here. The first uh, thought I have jotted down in my uh, introduction here, this won't be on the screen or on your notes, but I encourage you to write it down. This is a book about the Christian's command and commission. This is the book about the Christian's command and commission. If you want to know, after you put your faith and trust in Jesus, He saved you, right? Uh, The next step is baptism. Okay, that's all throughout. It's even in the book of Acts, but that's all throughout the uh, Gospels there. Um, uh, The idea of being baptized after we're saved. If, If baptism is below you, it shouldn't be because it wasn't even below Jesus. Jesus was baptized. So Jesus was baptized... And I don't mean he had a couple of drops of water sprinkled on his head by a priest. I mean, he was immersed under the water. That's what baptism is. It's immersion. Okay? Uh, but beyond the baptism, uh, what is it that the Christian is supposed to do? Do you just show up and throw a couple bucks in the offering plate? And um, live, go about living your life uh, having attended church once a week? Clearly, that's not the Christian life. You say, well... It's listening to the preaching and then leaving and doing what the preacher told me the previous Sunday. Well, if you have a good pastor who's adequately preaching the Bible, that might get you somewhat down the right track. But that's not going to get you all the way there, at least not very quickly. You say, well, what is it that God has called me to do? If it's not just to throw a couple dollars in the offering plate and casually attend, or it's not just to try to obey and listen to the preaching of the pastor, what is it? Well, uh, the book of Acts lays that out. And the, the idea here is that we are to flip this world upside down with radical living. You are to live your life in a way that is so radically different from what the world out there is that they want what you have. And if you're doing that, uh, then you'll be like the apostles. 
Man, uh, what they had was contagious. They watched Jesus for three and a half years walk the earth and uh, everything that He said, everything that He did, every life that He touched, every person who the rest of society ignored that He paid attention to, that changed them to their core. And then when it was their turn, they did the same thing. And it was said of them that they flipped the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the disciples had a little bit of an advantage. They laid their physical eyes on Jesus. They, they, they slept in the same field He did at night. They watched Him uh, feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two, two fishes. Um, they watched Him, at least John watched Him, hang on the cross and die. They all saw Him after He rose from the dead. They had the physical motivation from the from the physical interaction uh, to go do that. We don't have that, but we have the story and my goodness, we have the saving grace of Jesus that has come over us and has taken away our sins and we ought to be motivated to follow the same commission that was given to these disciples so many years ago. So what is the book of Acts? Well, it is the book that contains the command and the commission of the Christian. Let me give you another thought here. The book of Acts, uh, uh, this book on its own debunks the teachings of Calvinism. On its own, this book debunks the teachings of Calvinism. And so for those of you here tonight that don't know what Calvinism is, uh, I could spend weeks uh, uh, teaching you what it is and why it's wrong, but I'll just sum it up this way. Calvinists uh, follow the teaching of a man named John Calvin. And John Calvin, through his teachings, and some of that has been morphed and even perverted a little bit, but modern-day Calvinists, they believe that uh, uh, God will choose select people to go to heaven. And so if you're born and God has selected you to go to heaven, then at some point you will get saved, whether or not anybody witnesses to you. You will find that truth all on your own. Now, the, the hard part about that is that if God only created a certain select folks to go to heaven, well, then by default, he created the rest of them to send directly to hell. Now, how does that fit in the teaching of God being ever loving? How can you say God is love and then believe He created certain people that had no cho no chance of ever making it into heaven? Um, I was um, when I when I was candidating here a couple of months prior to that, I preached at a church in uh, on uh, on um, let's see which Stanton Island, not Long Island, Stanton Island, and they were looking for a pastor, and I was looking for a church. It was prior to knowing about White Oak, or maybe right after I learned about White Oak. So we went up there and we preached, and I met with the pulpit committee afterwards, and one of the men asked me, he said, what do you think of Calvinism? And I didn't waste a second. I looked right at him and I said, it's a doctrine of devils. And he's like, wow, that is a strong answer. And I said, I mean every word of it. Um, if, let me just reason with you here for a minute. If you're going to get saved, whether or not I witness to you, then why would I ever witness to anybody? Right? What, why do I need to tell you how to go to heaven? If God has made you where you are going to figure that out before you die, and you have no choice, ultimately, then I don't need to share the gospel with you. Um, verse 8 of Acts 1 says that ye uh, shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost come upon you. Ye shall be 
witnesses unto me. If, if I'm going to be a witness for Jesus, then clearly it's up to me to make sure others hear. And if I don't tell them, there's a chance they'll never hear. There's a chance that they could spend eternity in hell because they didn't hear. This whole book is filled with men that are on fire for Jesus. And they're going around the globe to tell everybody they can that Jesus saves. And because of that, because of that, we are sitting here tonight. The book of Acts on its own, just the fact that it exists in the Bible, debunks the entire teaching and belief system of Calvinism. Uh, The third thought I'd like to give you by way of introduction this evening is the model for biblical church growth is not to appeal to the flesh. Rather, it is to have a church full of spirit-filled disciples. Let 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 me read that again. The model for biblical church growth. We all want the church to grow, right? Anybody here praying that our church shrivels up and and, and falls apart? Anybody here praying for that? If you are, leave. (laughs) Um, Nobody here is praying for that. I think everyone's excited about the the people that have been getting baptized of late, right? Everybody excited about that? And, and the families that are joining our church and the, the people who are bright, uh, wide-eyed and bushy-tail about, bright-eyed and bushy-tail about getting to know the Scriptures. And, and, and God is beginning to send a lot of growth to our church by way of, of new people and new families and, and, and folks being saved regularly in the church services. And that's great. But uh, while we want growth, how do you grow? You see... In the New England area, specifically in this area of Connecticut, there don't seem to be a lot of churches that have this figured out. Now, I'm not trying to cast a negative light on them and shine only a bright light on us. There are a handful of other churches that are doing it the right way that are within driving distance of this church. I'll say that to be totally open and honest. But the average church, their method of growth is, let me appeal to your flesh. Let me appeal to your flesh. Let me appeal to your flesh. And if you can be entertained enough by the church, then maybe you'll stay. That's not biblical. That's not the Acts model for growth. How do you get a church to grow? Well, you, uh, you have to have a church full of spirit-filled disciples. I don't think that you ought to show up to White Oak Baptist Church on Sunday morning having attended a rock concert on Saturday night and walk in the door and go, well, other than the lyrics, they were pretty close. I don't believe that's how it ought to work. I believe our music here ought to be a sharp, stark contrast to what the world offers. I believe that when you walk into church, it ought to be a spiritual safe haven. This church ought to be a hospital where people can come and sit and feel like they're getting the medicine of the Bible to help heal them from the brokenness of sin that they have experienced all week outside of church. And so what is the model? The model is that the pastor is spirit-filled. The model is that the deacons are spirit-filled. The model is that the Sunday school teachers are spirit-filled and the bus captains are spirit-filled. But what about the pew warmers? The, the, the attendees. How about the people that just come and sit on the pew? How important is that they're spirit-filled? Here's the truth. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ and you come to this church, you are commanded to be spirit-filled. And the greater percentage of us that are allowing the Holy Spirit of God to lead us and guide us and direct us and control our emotions, the greater percentage of us that are doing that and living that way, the more likely it is God is going to endorse us and send growth our way. And so uh, the book of Acts tells us, gives us the model for biblical church growth. And it isn't to try to mirror the 
the world or act like the world or bring the world's music or standards in. It is to it is to have spirit filled disciples that are in the church, uh, 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 over the church, overseeing the church, uh, pastoring the church uh, uh, over the deacons of the church, sitting on the pews of the church. Now, Acts chapter one and verse eight, we just um, uh, read it in the introduction and we've looked at it once since it gives us. This uh, verse gives us the geographical outline for the book. Gives us the geographical outline for the book. Now, uh, the witness of the disciples to Jerusalem covers chapter 2 through 7. Look back at verse 8 there. Uh, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem. Now, the, the, the uh, evangelizing of Jerusalem covers chapters 2 through 7. Look there. Uh, in Jerusalem... And both in, uh, see, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria. So chapters 8 through 12 cover the, the evangelizing of Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 13 through 28 cover the uttermost parts of the earth. So verse 8 outlines the book. It is the key verse of the book. It outlines the book for us. 2 through 7, chapters 2 through 7, talk about the evangelizing of Jerusalem. 8 through 12, Judea and Samaria. 13 through 28, talk about evangelizing the uttermost regions of the earth. Now, what is the message of the book? Uh, I'll say this, the message of the book is simple to understand, and it's very powerful if it's practiced. Simple to understand, very powerful if it's practiced. Can I tell you this evening, most Christians are not practicing this powerful truth. Most aren't. Here it is. Salvation brings about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. Now, the Holy Spirit brings about the power to convince the lost world of the gospel and grow the church. The Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. It's up to me to give the gospel. No, it's up to you to open your mouth and let the Holy Spirit speak through you to others. If you are born again, you have within... The power to see the lost converted to Christ. You have the power to see newborn babes in Christ baptized. And you have the power to see those that are baptized adequately discipled. You say, but pastor, I've never been to Bible college. I can't do that. Pastor, I've never taken a class on, on how to lead a soul to Christ. I don't know how to do that. You know what your problem is? Your problem is, like most Christians, you're putting too much of the emphasis on you. What you can and can't do. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 said that you'll receive the Holy Spirit and He, through you, because of Him, you'll be witnesses unto me. It is the Holy Spirit's responsibility. Here's how this works. I stop somebody and I say, if you died today, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? And oftentimes I get an answer, you know, that's confusing. They, they don't really know how to answer the question. And so then I begin to show them in the Scriptures how that they're sinners. I begin to show them in the Scriptures that there's a punishment for sin. I begin to show them in the Scriptures that Jesus died for them. I begin to show them in the Scriptures that all they've got to do is place their faith in that great sacrifice and in the resurrection of Jesus on the cross. And, you know, here's what happens, all right? The Holy Spirit inside of me is giving me the words to say to them. I can't tell you, Brother John... How many times I've been out giving the gospel to somebody 
and I have said something, and then I left their house and said, where in the world did that come from? I've never even thought that thought before. But the, the message that came from my heart, through my lips, to them, it got through to them and it hit them. It hit them hard. And it was convicting and their heart was moved. And guess what happened? While I was speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit within me, the Holy Spirit's knocking on their heart's door saying, He's right, you're a sinner. He's right, you deserve to be punished for your sin. Listen to that. He's right, Jesus died on the cross. He's right, you need to call on His name. And while the Holy Spirit's working inside of me to give them the gospel, the Holy Spirit at the same time is working on them while they hear the gospel. And here we are sitting back going, well, I couldn't give someone the gospel. I don't know what to say. And I'm reminding, I just want to remind you tonight that in the book of Acts, the emphasis is not on the Christian. The emphasis is on the spirit inside of the Christian. Which brings me to this saying this. It's time that you quit looking at your inabilities and shortcomings. And rather that you start focusing on the power of the Holy Spirit that lies inside of you. Start focusing on the engine of the Holy Spirit and say, you can do it through me. Tonight we're going to begin a two, maybe three week Bible study into the book of Acts. Specifically in this week's study, we're going to look at some of the most misunderstood verses in the entire New Testament. We're going to look at some verses that most Christians, when they read them, they scratch their head and say, that's weird. I don't understand that. Well, tonight we're going to look at it. We're going to get some historical context. We're going to understand it. And uh, on top of that, uh, and I'm going to tell you right now why I'm going to take the time to focus on that. Because what Satan wants to do is he wants you to fall prey to false doctrine. He wants you to fall into false teachings. And if you do not understand the meaning of these critical verses, specifically Acts 2, 1 through 4, we'll look at them in a minute, uh, he could just sweep you right up. So this evening we're going to focus on five key thoughts uh, uh, as we study this topic of considering the commission of the Christian and the church. So point number one this evening, I encourage you to put that, put it, uh, right, fill in the blank on the back of your outline there. Number one, notice the promise of the Spirit. The promise of the Spirit. So this idea of the Holy Spirit indwelling the Christian. This was something that is, has been promised all the way back in the Old Testament. I love to tie the Old Testament back into the New Testament, okay? Um, let's do a little study here. Take your Bible and turn over to, hold your place in Acts. Take your Bible and turn over to Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah 32 and uh, verse number 15. So we'll start in Isaiah and then we'll work back toward the book of Acts. We're going to look at three different Old Testament books here. Isaiah chapter 32, verse number 15. By the way, each one of these places I'm going to take you, they make for awesome Bible studies, but we don't have time for that tonight. So I would encourage you to go back and study the verses around the ones we're going to read and, uh, and, and understand those better and, and deeper. I got to do a little bit of that this week in preparation for the message tonight, but time does not allow me to dive into those things. Isaiah 32, verse number 15, I'll begin reading. The Bible says, Under the, uh, Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest. So the Spirit of God was promised to be poured upon them from on high. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter number 36. Ezekiel 36, verse number 27.
The Bible says there, And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And, and let, me, let me say here, if you're wanting to know what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do inside of you, verse 27 says it very well. He's going to put the Spirit within you. Uh, the Spirit's going to help you to walk in His statues. He's going to help you to keep His judgments and to practice them, to do them. Verse 28, And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Verse 28 tells us that the Holy Spirit will make the relationship with God that much more full, that much more rich. So, again, the promise of the Holy Spirit being uh, put within them, being poured out on them in Isaiah. Look over at Joel chapter 2. Uh, Joel chapter 2 and verse number 27. So again, here in Acts 1, Jesus is telling them prior to ascending that uh, the Holy Spirit is going to uh, come down and uh, dwell in them, uh, empower them, help them. And so uh, uh, we see that this isn't just a promise that Jesus is giving them to their shock. This is something that's been promised to them going way, way back uh, hundreds and hundreds of years into the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, verse 27. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am uh, the Lord your God and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. Verse 27 is talking about Jesus dwelling amongst them. Verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterwards, so after Jesus leaves, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And there are records in the New Testament of old men seeing dream or dreaming dreams and and uh, young men having uh, visions there. And uh, so, verse 27, Jesus is going to come and be amongst us. After he leaves afterwards, uh, the Holy Spirit will come and indwell. So, verse number 8 of Acts 1, that ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. At that point, he had not come, but, but we see that the promise was there. Number 2, we see the power, the power of the Spirit. Um, look back at verse number 7 of Acts chapter 1. It says there, and he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father hath put in his own power. So let me just pause here. There is a power reserved for God and there is a power that he gives man. You understand here? The power reserved for God is to know the days and the seasons and the biblical dispensations, the biblical eras. The power reserved for man is given to us right here. Alright, verse 8. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. So God has promised with His Holy Spirit to give us an incredible power. Now, I'm not going to rehash this too hard. Uh, because we've covered this quite a bit in our series on Sunday nights talking about the Holy Spirit. But let me just remind you that everywhere in the Bible that you find the Holy Spirit, you find a reference to Him, uh, rather, everywhere, let me back up. Everywhere in the Bible you find the Holy Spirit doing something. You find the Holy Spirit doing something incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful. Um, and so, with that in mind, that system of power is lying within in you. Maybe the greatest sin committed by Christians is ignoring and not tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It's like having 
the most powerful sports car sitting in the garage and driving a putt-putt car around town. And being broken down on the side of the road. And you've got a, you've got a, a beautiful, perfectly built, powerful machine sitting in the garage. And the truth is, most Christians never even put the key in the ignition. They never even check it out. You say, well, if, if the Holy Spirit is the, is, the, uh, is the sports car, the powerful sports car in the garage, then what is the putt-putt car? The, 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 the green Honda Accord, which is what I drive, that, uh, 1997, I love my car. Um, uh, that little car, th- that, that would be similar to living your life through the power of the flesh. Why are you doing that? Why do I do that at times? I want to try to live life on my own and putt-putt through life and fail here and fail there and, 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 and break down for the Lord. And I've got the, I've got the Holy Spirit living inside of me. I don't even want to put the key in the ignition. He say, well, how do I put the key in the ignition? By submitting your flesh to Him and saying, you rule me and you, uh, you, 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 you call the shots in my heart and in my mind and through my emotions. Now, one measure of man's progress through the ages has been his discovery and use of power. All right. So what was the first power that man discovered? His muscles. Animals as well, right? And then in time, we began to tap into other forms of power and convert that into energy or ways to help us, uh, such as fire and wind and coal and gas and oil, uh, uh, to name a few. Here's some others. Steam, electricity, and maybe the greatest power as far as the natural resource that humans have tapped into is nuclear power. Nuclear power. Strangely and unfortunately, comparatively few have received and utilized God's spiritual power. The Holy Spirit, He's omnipotent. We're all-powerful. He is the source of all power. And whenever the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Bible, it's always in some way or another related to, to power. But the great emphasis on, uh, is on spiritual power. And we leave that untouched. And as I've preached uh, uh, on Sunday nights, we, we, we continue to live with habitual sins in our lives and we just don't deal with it. So how do you get past that? Well, Acts 1 tells us that we would receive power when we receive the Holy Ghost. And so if you're saved today, you put your faith in Jesus, then you have access to that power. The question is, are you using it? So number one, we looked at the promise of the Spirit. Number two, the power of the Spirit. Notice number three, the parallels with the Old Testament. The parallels with with the Old Testament. How many of you here really enjoy diving under the surface of the Bible and learning something new about the Scriptures? How many here that way? Well, buckle your seatbelt. Uh, we're about to do that. Or maybe put on your scuba diving gear. We're about to do that. Uh, if you don't enjoy that, well, I'm sorry. You're just going to have to endure for a few minutes. All right. Acts chapter 2. Look at verse number 1 there. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. You see that? Disciples. I'm going to leave that alone. Verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. 
And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Can I tell you something? Most of my Christian life, when I've read those verses, I have scratched my head and I have said this. That's weird. Anybody else ever feel that way? Am I the only one? Um, wind came around and there was like, was it like a cow's tongue that was on fire? Like what? That word tongue there doesn't mean like a tongue. But when I was younger, I understand that. It, it basically means a pillar of fire, right? There was this cloud of fire sitting on top of their head. And I thought, that is strange. And immediately thereafter, they started speaking other languages. And, and the image I always have had is these people, they're down on their knees and they're praying and they're confessing their sin and they're getting things right between each other and they get to that place where they're in one accord, not in a car. They're in one accord, they're in unity, they're in harmony. And what happens is all of a sudden, the, 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 the door gets blown open by wind and one guy looks up and there's this tongue of fire on someone's head and, and then they look up and it's above their own head and they start walking around and, and they start speaking all these strange languages. And I thought... That is a weird passage. Um, I, I'm going to show you tonight why that's not weird and why that happened. I'm going to show you that tonight. But in order to get that, I need to give you a little bit of background, okay? Uh, so please, please pay attention on purpose while I'm laying the groundwork here. And then uh, you're going to walk away going, wow, this is awesome. All throughout the New Testament, all right, uh, we are told that the Christian's body is a temple, and it is the temple of the Holy Ghost. So, uh, 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 a housing or an encasing where the Holy Ghost lives, right? Uh, this is foundational in understanding the beginning of Acts 2. You must understand that your body and their bodies were temples. Were temples, okay? That's foundational. Now, in the Old Testament, God dwelled... In the tabernacle first, in the, in the desert, right? Up until Solomon built this temple. And then God dwelled in the temple. So the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament were buildings in a tent. In the New Testament, the temple is a body. It is a Christian's flesh. It's a Christian's body. Now, um, I, I want to show you tonight why the, the, there was a pillar of fire over their head and there was a wind that blew through. Okay, let's dive in and see. Letter A, notice, God's place of dwelling. Uh, God's place of dwelling. Turn over to Haggai uh, chapter 2 and verse number 6. Haggai chapter 2 and verse number 6. I'm, I know I'm taking you to some, some obscure places here in the Bible, but I, uh, I want to show you here. Um, God's place of dwelling. The temple was a place where God dwelled. And, Hag and there's a lot of places in the Bible that say that, but I really liked the way that uh, the prophet Haggai put it. Look at chapter 2, verse number 6. The Bible says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once... It is a little while, and I will shake the heaven and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will uh, fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. I will fill this house. So, 
Um, Haggai, the prophet, was instructing the priest and the governor of Israel at this time to go ahead and build the temple anew. And he was reminding them that once that temple was built, that God was going to come in and dwell there. Okay, what's first Corinthians six nineteen tell us? What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? So in the Old Testament, where did God dwell? Speak to me. Where did God dwell in the Old Testament? In the temple, in a physical building in the temple. In the New Testament, where does God in the form of the Holy Spirit dwell? He dwells in the believer, which is a temple, right? So, he dwelled in the Old Testament building temple. In the New Testament, he dwelled in the Christian's body as a temple, okay? So, uh, that's important. Letter B, notice God's method of endorsing. God's method of endorsing. Now, uh, under the, uh, upon the construction, turn over to Second Chronicles chapter 7 here. Uh, upon the construction completion of both the tabernacle and the temple, God placed His endorsement on that temple in a very unique and powerful way. In Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7, we find the, uh, the uh, dedication of the temple, and God is going to endorse the temple uh, with wind. Wind. So notice there... Wind. Okay, look with me at Second Chronicles chapter seven and look at verse number one. Chapter six, he, uh, Solomon finishes a long and lengthy prayer of dedication. Come to chapter seven. Now, when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord had filled uh, the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord. Upon the house, they bowed themselves with their face to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. I got my passages turned around here. That should have been under the next one there. That one should have been under fire. Go ahead and throw fire up there for me. Uh, the next one on the screen there, fire. So, Second Chronicles, we find God endorsing the temple with Fire. How about the tabernacle? The tabernacle. Uh, Exodus chapter 40. For sake of time, let me read this here. And he reared up the court, Exodus 40, 33. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle in the altar and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. This is the first time the tabernacle has ever been completed. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up uh, from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. So there was a cloud or wind that blew the cloud into the uh, tabernacle and God sent fire into the temple. And uh, those two there endorsed the tabernacle upon its opening and endorsed the temple upon its opening. Now, with that in mind, go back to Acts 2 with me and look at verse number 1. Go back to Acts 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly, this is the first time the Holy Spirit has ever indwelled a New Testament believer. Okay? So this is God, God needs to endorse His new temple in the New Testament the way He did in the Old Testament. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, just like when the tabernacle was completed. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared upon them cloves, cloven tongues or pillars like as a fire. And it sat upon each of them, just like in the Old Testament. By the way, 
that in, in, in the, with the tabernacle, it was a cloud by day. What, what did that cloud become at night? Came a pillar of fire. So just like, just like in the Old Testament, the tabernacle had a cloven tongue of fire over it. In the New Testament, the temple, the new temple, the body of the Christian, God is endorsing this for the first time, just like He did in the Old Testament. Letter C, we see God's purpose fulfilled. God's purpose fulfilled. Now, we're going to focus on the day of Pentecost and the marvelous things that happened there. The 3,000 souls that were saved and all that. We'll focus on that in just a moment. But as the church began to be established and grow, we get a glimpse of what the church was doing. Okay, uh, Chapter 2, verse 46 of Acts through chapter 5, verse 42. The common theme, the great grand common theme is that the disciples gathered in the temple court. And from house to house. Daily, the Bible says, they went from house to house, right? So they're having Bible studies in people's homes. They're gathering in the courtyard. And, and the apostles are standing on Solomon's porch at the, the old temple. And I say old because, yes, while it was the temple building, God no longer was using that. He was using the believers. So they stood on Solomon's porch at the temple building. And they, they proclaimed, they preached to the, the body of believers, that first church there in front of them. So chapter 246 through 542, you've got that theme. But inside of that, a sub-theme, you find uh, from chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, verse 31, and then 512 through 542, you find that Peter and the apostles are preaching and healing. And then you also find that they're being arrested and tried for their preaching and healing. But right in the middle of these themes, we find some information that seems to be random. It seems to be a little out of place. Go over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. So, here in the book of Acts, you have um, the early church, the church of Jerusalem. And uh, it's exploding in growth. We'll talk about that more under another point here. But it's ex exploding in growth. And the Bible is giving us some details about how the growth is happening and how the leaders of the church are being persecuted. And it, it, it's telling us uh, uh, about uh, all of those type of things. And then it just seems to stick this right in the middle. And it seems to be out of place. All right. Look at chapter 4, verse 32 with me. Let me get on the right page. The Bible says... And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and, and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph was uh, by the apostles, uh, uh, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation or the son of great gift giving, a Levite and of the contrary of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what was going on here was people, as 
they began to get saved, began to get their hearts right, began to grow in the Lord, they began to take their properties in their lands. They began to take their possessions they had. And they began to sell them. And they began to take the money from that. And they began to bring it to church and lay it at the feet of the apostles and said, look, take our money and use it to help the poor. You say, oh, well, isn't that socialism? The biggest difference between this and socialism is this was voluntary. No one was making them do it. In a socialistic system, the government says, no, 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 you have to give it. So that's the biggest difference between this setup and socialism. This seems to be oddly placed right in the stories of the growing of the, of the, of the uh, church until you keep in mind that Luke is trying to show us that this temple, this new temple, is, 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 is doing what God had created the original Old Testament temple to do. Turn over with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter number 15. Deuteronomy 15, and we'll, we'll finish with this. Deuteronomy 15 and verse number 7. God here in Deuteronomy 14 and 15 is laying out some rules. Some of these rules would be done, would be done away with in the New Testament, such as dietary restrictions, those kind of things. But he's laying out for them what he wants his people to do, how he wants them to behave, how he wants them to look out for each other, and how that the temple is to be the center of that. Look at verse number 7. We'll just jump right down into it here. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If there be any among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within all of thy gates, in the land which the Lord God giveth thee, Thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother, but thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. What were they to do? What was the purpose of the temple? The purpose of the temple, in part, was to take care of the poor. Look down at verse number 11 of Deuteronomy 15. For the poor shall never cease out of the land, Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy in thy land. Hey, uh, we were being told here in Deuteronomy, you will always have the poor amongst you. You cannot extinguish or, or do, do, do away with completely uh, uh, the poor. You're always going to have them amongst you. And so part of the purpose of the Old Testament temple was to take care of the poor. And so what is Luke trying to tell us here in Acts 4? That the new temple, the body of the believers, the collection of the body of the believers, the temple was accomplishing the purpose of what the Old Testament temple had been done. This really is now a versus situation. This is the old temple versus the new temple. And the Pharisees wanting to hold on to the old temple. And the New Testament believers saying, no, we don't need the old Testament. We don't need that temple to take care of the poor. We will take care of the poor as the temple of Christ. Um, it is time, uh, uh, it's time for me to wrap it up tonight. Let me just uh, encourage you with this tonight. And that is that you are taking care of the poor. That you don't have a heart that's cold toward them. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed tonight. Lord, I ask that you'd help us to uh, consider the teaching and preaching of your word. And Lord, uh, help us to better understand it. Thank you that you have called us to be the temple. Thank you that you indwell us. Lord, may we live worthy of that. May our hearts be cleaned and purified. Lord, may you be in charge. 
in our hearts. I think back to the Old Testament temple, how disgusted you were with it sometimes. Because of the idol worship, the unholiness, the lewd acts, the coldness, the, um, the ritualism that began to take place in the absence of worship. And God, I, I'll be honest, that sometimes is, is the case in my heart. All of those things can find their place into the temple of my body. Would you help us, Lord, not to allow that to happen? May we honor you by having a temple that is pure and right. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.